tonight. First Peter chapter 2. Amen. Sister Dot, I was looking for you. you um, the word, was that the one you gave to the... Okay. All right. Amen. Okay. All right. Good things. Praise God. It was a beautiful word, by the way. So, amen. Had some awesome prayer time, ministry time at the altar this morning. Some people really getting touched. And so, it's good. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to try to connect some dots for you tonight between these verses here in 1 Peter and, and what is the heart of our Father um, for us. And um, so anyway, just spend a little time doing some teaching tonight. I, I believe that there's some things the Lord wants to speak to our hearts in the process. So 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse number 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. We, we could teach multiple messages on just that verse. Um, you know, being deceitful, uh, being less than genuine, um, wanting what somebody else has, and then all evil speaking. That's everything from, um, you know, gossiping about someone to, you know, the Bible says that if we, if we don't offend in word, right, we're a perfect man. And there's a lot of temptation to talk about people behind their back and to speak negatively about situations, to say things, you know, out of our mouths that don't agree with what God's Word says. So when he says all evil speaking, I mean, just remember when the spies brought back a negative report, a report that was less than full of faith. We would just simply call it a fact-based report, just, just giving everybody the facts, you know. Um, but, but Father called it an evil report, an evil report. So he's saying, look, it's, it's time to just put it all aside, put it all behind us. It's not who we are. It's, um, it doesn't look good on us. Amen? <laughs> it's conduct unbecoming. And um, so, but anyway, praise God. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, and, and I don't know about you, but I've tasted and he's gracious. Um, we've been on a verse for a week or so now in the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning class that I teach, and, and it's in Proverbs where the Bible says that if, if, he, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, if, if he judged and punished every sin the moment it happened, there'd be nobody left on planet Earth, right? But there's forgiveness with him, the Bible says. There's forgiveness with him. Our God is a merciful God. Every morning his mercy is new. And he is a gracious God. Indeed, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, 
And again, that word disobedient means unwilling to be persuaded. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We mentioned this last Sunday night, but um, the Weist translation says it this way about him being rejected. After careful examination, they found him to be that which did not meet their specifications. Wow. One more time. The stone which the builders rejected, after careful consideration, they found Jesus to be him, to be that which did not meet their specifications. In other words, they gave him careful examination, but decided that he was not fit to build their lives upon or to build their lives according to. Amen. Sad, isn't it? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 8. And a rock of, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So much changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we see that the Old Testament existed to show us the power of sin. But now the New Testament shows us the power of love, or the, or the power of God's grace. The Old Testament and the law was never given to make us right before God. It was never given so that we could use it to, to receive our inheritance from God. But it was given to convince us of one thing, our need for a Savior. And of course, Jesus came as that Savior. One of the challenges that people have in, <clears throat> in learning about God and studying the Scriptures is, you know, what part is Old Testament, what part... You know, in other words, what part of the Old Testament do we still live by? What part of the New Testament do we still live by? And, you know, for instance, tithing, we've already received an offering, so we're not going to receive another one. But there are people who say, well, tithing is Old Testament, but, you know, it's the law. But tithing predated the law. And tithing was something that God instructed Abraham to do. And the Bible clearly says in the New Testament that we're children of Abraham. And Jesus uh, commended tithing, spoke of tithing in the New Testament. Um, We've been of late in the morning classes talking about the fear of God. There are people who say, well, the fear of God's Old Testament and it's the grace of God now in the New Testament. And, and yet we see that the proper respect, that's what the fear of God means, to have the proper respect for Him, that transcends Testament. In other words, we, Jesus, you know, had the proper respect for His Father as a man on planet Earth. So trying to kind of, you know, sort through these things that, you know, some of them pass with the Old Testament, but some of them continue on and will even beyond this life. Now, when he talks about Jesus being the living stone and that we come to him also as living stones because we've been born of his seed, and we now have um, that in common with him, that we have now been joined together with him and the Bible says are being built up a spiritual house. There's all kinds of um, imagery here. There's, there's all kinds of things that 
you know, I think, again, would be important for us to spend a little time talking about tonight, and so we'll do that if that's okay with you. In the Old Testament, you had the physical trappings, you know, the tabernacle, the temple, and of course all of those things, the inner court, the outer court, come into his courts, all, all of that was beautiful, all of that was symbolic, even down to the Holy of Holies. We see now that all of those things are no longer something built with men's hands, but they're now something that are being built by the Spirit of God. For instance, your heart now has become the dwelling place of God, not a temple built with someone's hands, but we, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, are His workmanship, His craftsmanship. We, we've been recreated and you have now become the dwelling place of God. First John says it this way, if you believe in God, then God abides in you. Amen. Now, if you understand what that looked like, again, back in the Old Testament, you had to go to a place where God dwelt. He didn't dwell in every person, every human being. He dwelt in um, a temple behind a curtain that only one man went once a year into God's presence. So this again is something that Jesus has, has radically changed. So now we see that as we come to Jesus, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, we come to him as living stones, we're, we're combining together with him to offer up the spiritual sacrifices. In other words, remember, they actually offered animal sacrifices, physical, tangible, literal sacrifices. Here he's talking about sacrifices of a, of a different kind. Basically, he's talking about the things that we do and the people that we touch and minister to that brings glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. Now, when we come to this verse 9, you are a chosen generation. He's talking about you tonight. We said this morning, we said last week that if you never give Jesus his place in your life, then he can never give you your place in life. And verse 9 is representative of the place that he's trying to, to give you. Um, in other words, the Bible says if we humble ourselves under him, he will promote, he will exalt us, he will lift us up and put us in the place that we were intended to occupy in life, in his kingdom. In, in, in the authority and the power and the wisdom, and, and we just go on and on, right? All of these things are, that's your place that he has for you. But we'll, we'll never find our place until we give him his place. We, we can't find it without him because our place is not just, hallelujah. The Holy Spirit said it through you away this morning, Sister Dot, when you were, we were ministering down here at the altar. And, and, 
And it's our places of Him is, is basically how the Holy Spirit was saying that through you. In other words, that's why He's the chief cornerstone and we're living stones. And, you know, He has a peace that we absolutely can't make it without. But you have a peace, amen, that, that joins along together with Him that helps build this house. How do, how do I say this another way? It, it would be like if part of this wall over here was missing. I mean, you know, I guess we could put a tarp up or something, you know, but um, in other words, everybody has a place. And if, and if we're not in our place, you can't, you can't take somebody else's place. You can't, you know, if I was out of town tonight, you know, get somebody to preach for me. Well, it's not that they would be taking my place. They would be taking their place. And they'd be doing what God called them to do. Amen. And, you know, I can't do for you what God put you on this earth to do no more than you can do for me what he put me on this earth to do. We all have our place. And so it's, it's when we give him the place in our life that he deserves, he's able to put us in the place that he has for us. Now, verse 9 is representative of who you are in him. We could say it another way. This is how he sees you. This is, this is who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Notice he didn't say you will be a chosen generation. He didn't say if you keep coming to church and if you, know, if you graduate you know, from discipleship class or if you go to Bible school you know, and keep playing your spiritual cards right, you'll one day be. No, he says you are. Speaking to people who, who are born again. But you are right now in Christ Jesus a chosen generation. Remember, you became something the day you were born again. You became something that day that you were not before. The problem that we have in the body of Christ today is that people know more about the person that they were than the person they became. And because we know more about the person we were and we think more like the person we were than the person we became, we still have a tendency to live like that person. But that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You are. I'm talking to a room full of chosen generation, royal priests, and a holy nation. Amen. We are His own special people. You're not like everybody else on planet earth. You're special. You're exceptional. You're different. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, you're behaving like mere men. We are not mere men and women anymore. We're born again men and women. We're living stones. And we've been joined to our chief cornerstone. And notice he says, also that we may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now see, this, this kind of goes back to the spiritual sacrifices and now that we may proclaim the praises of Him. This, is, this is, certainly includes what we've already done in this room tonight when we gather together to sing worship and praise to our Heavenly Father. But this means so much more than that. It's talking about our capacity now, our ability now to represent Him. To represent means to what? Present Him again. Represent. Present Him again and again and again wherever we go, uh, you know, wherever we may find ourselves. You know, you can, you can have... Uh, people get born again and, and, and filled with the Spirit, for that matter, and, and healed um, on the uh, bread aisle at Walmart now. They don't have to leave and go to some temple or some church somewhere. 
Because you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that proclaiming the praises of Him literally, literally means to, to represent Him, to, to do things that reflect Him, to, to, to operate in such a way as for people to do what they first did uh, amongst the believers in Antioch when they, when they were first called Christians in Antioch. And that was not a title that they assumed for themselves. They were called Christ-like because they were like Christ to the point that people were saying these people are acting like Jesus now. They're Christians. They're Christians. Some people actually meant it as a derogatory term. In other words, they meant it in, in a, in almost like in a mockery way. You know, these people are fanatics. They're, they're, like, they're acting like that Jesus from Nazareth. Y'all remember him, don't you? Ha, 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 right? So he's talking about you and me now. Amen. Now, in the Old Testament, we see where God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. This was the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is divided into 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes were the 12 sons of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons had 12 families. Those 12 families became the 12 tribes of Israel, making up the nation of Israel. And Father's plan called for the entire nation of Israel to be priests for the other nations of the world. Now, a priest is someone who represents others before God. I like to simplify. The, the Bible talks about three offices, the office of king, the office of prophet, and the office of priest. And we see these were offices that God established and then He put people in these offices to function in those offices. And what we see, to simplify it, is that a prophet spoke on God's behalf to the people. God would tell the prophet what he would want said or spoken to the people and then the prophet would begin to, to proclaim that to the people. The priest reversed that. If the prophet spoke to the people on God's behalf, the priest spoke to God on the people's behalf, representing the people before God. The king, of course, was anointed by God to rule. And his office was an office of speaking as well. But we see that the king was one who simply made decrees or he would make declarations. He would declare a thing and God, as, as, as God does, would establish what the king decreed or declared. And so we see these three offices operating according to God's plan and God's purposes. But His plans originally were for the entire nation of Israel, for the whole nation, for all 12 tribes to become priests and represent, be that, that, that intercessor, that, that intermediary um, in between God and the other nations of the earth. There's just one problem with that. The nation of Israel refused. They wouldn't cooperate with God in that. They, they said, we're not, we're not interested in that. I'm not going to be no priest. No, thank you, sir. You know, I mean, it was, it was kind of rude of them. But again, 
they rejected that. They rebelled against that. And so what God did at that point, what Father did at that point, is he established all the descendants of Levi. Levi was one of those 12 sons who was the father of the tribe of Levi. And so he established all the descendants of Levi. In other words, I'm not saying this was an exact mathematical equation, but in essence, um, nominally, one-twelfth of the nation of Israel, one, one out of the twelve tribes, all the descendants of Levi, became priests, not for the nations, but they became priests for the nation of Israel, for the other eleven tribes. Are you seeing this? In other words, God was looking beyond, God always was looking beyond the, His chosen people, the Jews. You, you see the promise that He made to Abraham. He said, all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. And so God's plan was to have a nation of priests that would represent the other nations before him. But that nation of priests, the Israeli people, they, they refused to do that. And so one tribe, the, Le, the, the Levites, and that's why it's the book of Leviticus, the Levitical priesthood, right? They, they were the descendants from Levi. And rather than they be priests for all the other foreign nations, they simply became priests for the other 11 tribes or the rest of the nation of Israel. But here's what you've got to understand about your Father in heaven. If He ever purposes in His heart to do something or to have something, it doesn't matter how long it takes or how much it costs. He's going to have it. He's going to see it through. So we see in the Old Testament that He had a desire for a nation of priests who would be his priest, priest unto him, being that go-between representing the other nations on planet earth and helping bring those people to him. My friend, you are tonight the fulfillment of this desire in our Creator Father's heart. You are that chosen generation. You are that royal priesthood. You are that holy nation tonight. That's who you are. You may not see your... Notice here, and there's a lot of teaching that we've done in the past on this, this king, priest, and prophet. If you, if you look at, at David in the Old Testament, he was a, a type of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, allowed himself, Father God allowed himself to be referred to as the son of David. Amen. And we see that David was this unique character in the Old Testament. He was unique for a lot of reasons. One is because he had a revelation of the Hasid of God, the love of God, long before anybody ever understood anything about God is love. King David understood that. And we see that King David was very unique in the sense that he operated in those different offices. He wasn't just king. He was both a king, he was both a priest, and he even operated prophetically. Some of the most accurate prophecies that we have in the Old Testament of Jesus' crucifixion came through King David. This was different from Saul. Remember, Saul tried to step in and operate in the role of the prophet priest, and, and he was rebuked for it by God. But, but not David. Again, because David was a type and shadow of our Messiah, of Jesus. 
And we see that when Jesus came, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the embodiment. Jesus, our chief cornerstone, is our king, our priest, and our prophet. And we've been born of his seed. This is why you're not just a king and a priest under our God, but you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You are special to your heavenly Father. You say, but Pastor Mark, I've made mistakes this week. You are special to your heavenly Father. But Pastor Mark, I'm, I'm still growing and there's so much I don't understand and the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. You are His own special people. He has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for you. He wants to use you, amen, to bridge the gap between Him and other people on planet Earth. He didn't just pay silver and gold for you. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, said we were redeemed. In 1 Peter, he, he said, in 1, he said, not with, with, with things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. It cost him dearly to put us in this position. And notice the connection between his love for you and his love for other people on planet Earth. His, his desires for you and how His desires for you include His desires for other people that you have the capacity to reach for Him. What He does in you, He wants to do through you. What He's done for you, He wants to use you to do for someone else. Because our Heavenly Father is others-minded. He's not, he's not selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-absorbed. He's others-minded. He's always looking to others. He's always wanting something good for somebody else. Amen. And so even in, He created you and me in such a way as to our greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in life is when we actually represent Him to other people. It's like Matthew talking about you know, about to bust this morning, the, the, the joy. Again, it's because he's, he has a, you know, we have a, a perspective that he doesn't have. We're all standing here looking at him. You've got to remember, he's up here looking at us. And sometimes what Paul and Vanessa and Matthew and John Mark and Bethany, sometimes what they, they see, they just have to not pay attention to, Right? Because they're trying really, really hard to lead people into worship and people are trying really, really hard to mean mug them. You know what I'm saying? It's like, another song? Are you kidding me? You know? So when he says, I'm about to bust, that tells me that a whole lot of folks were worshiping this morning. A whole lot of people were connecting with the love of our Father. Are you seeing this? Some of you know he's, he goes to the Bessemer City Jail and does a service every Sunday morning. And, and uh, he told me years ago, he said, it's like therapy for me. <laughs> In other words, it's, it's, it's a, he has a very stressful job. He says, just, just release my stress to go in there with those, those men and now the women in the jail at different times, not together. And see the love of God touch them. And, and you know, the first time I went, I'm not throw him under the bus or anything. First time we went though, I, I don't know, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't aware enough for it to intimidate me or scare me, but he didn't, he didn't like it first time. And that big old steel door slammed behind us. 
Matt was like, you know, I'm like, maybe he was big brother. I don't know, you know, watching out for me. I don't understand. But, um, but now it's like therapy for him. Why? Because, again, he's a royal priest. He's a chosen generation. He's a holy nation. God's own special son. He sends him into these places to proclaim his praises. Amen. Absolutely. Open him back up. Amen. Open him back up. Praise God. Now, i got a few minutes. Let's try to do one last piece of this. It doesn't just say a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but it says a chosen generation. A chosen generation. You say, well, since this was written, you know, a couple of thousand generations ago, he must have been talking to somebody who lived a long time ago. Wrong. Amen. That would be inaccurate understanding of this. When this was originally written by Peter to the church, you know, what, nearly 2,000 years ago now, he wasn't just saying to that generation that they are a chosen generation. They were, but the generation that came after them also was. And the one that came after them, and the one that came after them, and the one that came after them, all the way up to you and me tonight. We are a chosen generation. You say, well, how, how can one generation be chosen and then, the, and then the next generation? Well, again, there's some Old Testament ties here that we need to understand. When Isaiah, and by the way, a lot of our key verses of late, um, and we'll get back to Isaiah 8 and 28 probably next week. But If you remember, Isaiah was the one who prophesied of all that Jesus would endure and that his stripes would bring healing to our physical bodies and that he would be despised and rejected and that people would assume that he was being smitten and punished by God. And you have to, again, put yourself in Isaiah's position when he's saying, he's writing this, and I'm sure he's probably, if he's anything like me, I, I have a hard time turning off the internal editor when I'm writing, you know, and so I'll write a paragraph and then read it 17 times and, you know, does that sound right? How's that going to, is that going to make sense to folks? You know, does this make sense to me just because I'm, I know what I'm thinking? But if somebody doesn't know what I'm thinking, you know. So can you imagine him, Isaiah, writing this prophetic word from the Holy Spirit where he says, people are going to think God's doing this to you, but God's not doing this to you, but it's pleasing God for this to happen to you. And how odd, I mean, it's like, what does all this mean? Well, of course, we know that it was pleasing God because he was being smitten, not by God, but for you and me to pay our penalty. The wrath and the, and the judgment that belonged to us, Jesus took that bitter cup and drank it for us. I'm probably way oversimplifying this, but, but you know, we were about to be hung. We were about to be executed, and Jesus said, no, let them go free and you hang me instead. He did that for us, right? And this pleased our Father because, again, of his love for us and Jesus' willingness to be obedient to the plan that he agreed to before Adam and Eve were ever created. 
Now, as the prophecy from Isaiah unfolds, and again, there's weeks worth of sermons there, he finishes it up with this statement. He says, And who will declare his generation? Who will declare his generation? And you know, all the other things, when I say make sense, I mean, obviously, about him being beaten and smitten and bruised and despised and rejected and all these other things. But a lot of times I think we just read over that part, who will declare his generation, without really understanding their culture or what Isaiah was saying. And so here it is. When Isaiah said, who will declare his generation, he was saying this. And to make matters worse, all of this is going to happen to this man in the future that will come in the future. All of this is going to happen to him and he's going to be horrifically murdered in this way before he had the chance to give birth to a son to carry on his name, to carry on his mission. Who will declare his generation? In other words, there's, there's no one to take up his purpose, to take up the very cause for which he would die and continue on with it. Are you seeing this? So he's like, he's like who will declare his generation? So we hear that. That doesn't mean anything to us. And, and, and obviously, you know, here in America, having children and somebody to carry on the family name, you know, that sort of thing, that's important to us. I'm not saying that it's not. But in their day, um, this was like a fate worse than death. I mean, this was, in a lot of people's estimation, that was the worst thing that was going to happen to Jesus. Not just that he was going to suffer and be falsely accused and beaten and smitten and rejected and despised and hated and all that. Then it's like, and it's even worse than that because all of this will happen to him before he gives birth to a son to have another generation of his name living and breathing on planet Earth. Okay. But Father had a plan, amen? That plan was you are a chosen generation. Who will declare his generation? Will you? Will you pick up where he left off? Will you take his platform and run with it? Will, will you be the one that represents? Because remember now, our Heavenly Father has no grandchildren. That's why this was every generation and, and should Jesus tarry his return to the earth and 15 generations from now of Christians on planet earth, right? They will still be that chosen generation because our Heavenly Father has no grandchildren. He only has children. He only has offspring. And remember, we're all born of the seed, Jesus. We're all born of His seed and we are His generation. We are those who bear His name. We are those who carry on in His name. But you are a chosen generation. <laughs> a royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people 
that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. Called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Remember what we said about darkness and light, their irritants to one another. And the one thing those in darkness need the most is the one thing that they fear the most, and that's light. The Bible says that those who are in darkness will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. But I remind you that there's the temporary discomfort of having the wrong in our life exposed to the light by coming to the light. Once we push through that temporary discomfort, we then enter into the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The other side of that coin, the other choice we have is to run from the light and experience the temporary relief from the discomfort light brings to our darkness. But we trade that temporary relief for ongoing pain and misery in our lives. Either way, there's going to be discomfort. Temporary discomfort and the peaceable fruit of righteousness or there's going to be the temporary relief and the continued pain of misery and regret that comes from not dealing with what only Father has the ability to deal with in our lives. So He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Amen. Amen. Are you seeing this? So again, we're coming to Him as a living stone. And you also are living stones. And Jesus is our chief cornerstone. He, he is the determining factor of our place and our placement. Amen. Your place in this life is a place in His kingdom, is a place in Him. And it's glorious. People say something to this effect. I've heard it. I read a book years ago. It was one of my sociology classes in, in college. And, and it was really interesting. One of the more interesting ones. Um, Matthew studied electrical engineering. And I, every now and then I'd drag him along, you know, for a mini-term or a class, you know, and Look, you just have to know me, okay? I, but I, I, their class is called gerontology. I don't know if they still call them that, you know. And it's basically this, the study of old people and the care of old people, you know. And <laughs> so anyway, it, it, one of those classes, I had to read a book, and it was, it was basically um, they interviewed centurions. These are people who had lived to be 100 years old or older. And the research you know, basically asked them a series of questions and then they com kind of compiled all the answers to try to see if there were any trends. And one of the trends that developed from that research was people at that stage in their life looking back, you know, what mattered to them. And, 
and obviously that's a unique perspective on life. And one of the things that they said is that they wish they had done more that would carry on after they were gone. And then another one of the things that they said is that, is that, and it was interesting because they would interview these people all over the world and yet you would get these similar answers. And it kept coming up this whole idea, those who were and those who weren't. And there were some people it was, it was something they were most proud of that was very meaningful in their lives. And then there were others looking back, it was a regret in their life. But it had to do with being a part of something bigger than themselves. Being a part of something bigger than themselves. I'm offering to you tonight again that it's hardwired into us by our Creator Father to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We were never meant to be on an island. We were never created to do life alone. We were created for fellowship with God and with others. But we were also created to be a part of something. And so this was not a, like a Christian type book, but I saw so much of my father in that book. And I, I learned so much because, again, we were created by him to make a mark on this world that will continue should Jesus tarry long after we're gone. And it's, and it's written upon our hearts to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And, and I'm, again, notice he's the chief corner. He's a living stone. You also are living stones. You find your place in him by giving the chief cornerstone place in your life. And he then joins you into and makes you a part of something much bigger than yourself that will make an eternal difference. That'll make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. Amen. All right, stand with me tonight. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You get anything out of this? So I want you to, um, here's your homework assignment, should you accept it. Some of you have memorized it already, some of you have not. First Corinthians, uh, First Corinthians, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. When I say memorize it, I'm not like, you know, stand up straight and King James it. I'm talking about internalize it. You've got to memorize it to internalize it. There's a lot of people who can quote a lot of scripture, but they haven't internalized any of it. What do I mean by internalizing it? I want that passage to become a part of your personality. I want that, I want who you are in him to start to come alive in you like never before. The devil's tried your whole life to get you to look at yourself as a loser, as a failure, as someone that's, you know, has nothing to offer, you know, just victim, whatever. He's tried your whole life to get you to see yourself that way. And it, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Father, thank you for these men and women who have given you this place in their lives on this Sunday evening. Thank you, Father, for what you're helping us see by your Holy Spirit, by your precious Holy Word. Thank you, Father, that as we give you place in our lives, you are 
helping us see and helping us live from our place in life. Father, I thank you for divine appointments that are already on your calendar for us this week. People, Father, that, that you would have us interact with. People, Father, that you would have us represent before you this week and bridge that gap between your heart and theirs this week. Maybe that's in the form of a kind word, an email, a phone call, a text message, a, a written letter, a knock on the door, an invitation to lunch. I don't know what that looks like, Father, but we're surrounded by people who are hurting, some of them desperately so. Help us understand that we're a part of your answer for them. Help us connect, Lord, with our destiny in a tangible, practical, meaningful way this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Shake somebody's hand, hug somebody's neck.